0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: When my daughter called from college one night and asked what I was doing, I said, I'm doing what every mother does I'm practicing my body wave. I was talking about the dance move, the one that starts at your shoulders and rolls all the way down your spine to your hips. Do it correctly, and your body looks like a lovely piece of silk. Get clumsy with it, and you look like you're heaving after one too many pints. I wasn't sure how I looked. I didn't have a mirror in my living room. Instead, I was examining my murky reflection in a picture frame. Is this for sexy salsa? said my daughter. Sexy salsa was what she'd started calling the dance lessons I'd been taking— They weren't salsa, however. They were bachata. Not just bachata, but sensual bachata. I hadn't even known it existed until I'd gone looking for dance lessons and landed on the Dublin Salsa Academy website. You can't see a dance with the word sensual in its name and not immediately Google it. From there, it was a quick hop over to YouTube's Dance Step Tutorials. Bachata, I learned, had originated in the rural Dominican Republic. The word sensual wasn't a lie, and while you might not have to shoo the kids out of the room, I doubted the dance made an appearance at many church revivals. In one demonstration, a dance instructor held his partner so close their hips practically shared the same joints. Her body responded to his with an electric kind of wave. "'Good Lord,' one woman wrote in the comments, "'if my partner danced like that with me, "'I'd fall in love with him.' "'I signed up for lessons. "'I'd always wanted to dance. "'I'd grown up in a rural area, "'but sadly not in the Dominican Republic. "'My American childhood home "'had been surrounded by Amish farms. "'If you weren't forbidden from dancing, "'you were probably learning to square dance. "'If you weren't square dancing,' you were probably taking ballet lessons in a church basement. That's what I'd done, grandjetéing across the linoleum floor below a Baptist sanctuary. My teacher had counted the time in a raspy chain smoker's voice. She was mid-fifties from the waist up, but her well-sculpted dancer's legs would have made any teenager jealous. Thirty-five years had passed since then, Sitting in my Dublin flat, I told myself dance would be good for me. It would get me outside of my head. It was the end of a relationship that had really prompted it. There's nothing like a dose of heartbreak to launch you into a different version of yourself. Eventually, you have to quit crying and turn off Gilmore Girls. You have to look in the mirror or picture frame and say, Right, time to revamp. The classes were held above the Harbor Master restaurant. Climbing the stairs for the first time, I was a mess of nerves. A salsa lesson had just finished. The music was loud, but my inner introvert was louder as she demanded an immediate return to my flat. I could see her point. I calmed her down with the promise of takeaway falafel and cracked on. And so it began. Once a week, I joined a group of about twelve beginners. We kept our distance as we practiced bachata's basic step-step-step-tap format. Soon, our instructor had us move closer. We took turns dancing with different partners, learning the Dominican box step, the pretzel turn, and a variation called Under the Bridge. I stopped thinking so hard and simply gave my feet permission to move. I walked home by the river, watching swans pilot their bodies through the day's final folds of sun. In August, my family came from the U.S. for a visit, and I missed class. My daughter stayed for three months, so I pressed pause on the dancing. I didn't totally stop revamping, though. One Saturday, I visited some married friends who'd met online and somehow left their house with a new dating profile on Match.com. My daughter has left Ireland now, and I'm getting ready to go back to dance. I've been practicing my body wave again. We didn't get that far in class before, but I want to be prepared when it comes. I figure most things in life work out best that way, including dance and love. It's half preparation, half just rolling with it. Maybe a voice has said it's time to move on so you find yourself standing face-to-face with one stranger, then another. Eventually, one of them looks at you in a way that makes you feel electric. You get nervous. You don't know all the steps, you tell yourself, but you know enough to get started. So you take their hand.
2: My uncle was a kind and generous man. Widowed around the time I was born, he was my godfather, and most years gave me a gleaming new bicycle for my birthday. He was prominent in the Waterford livestock trade and lived in a fine house. Always impeccably dressed, he wore a Homburg hat, the same as Anthony Eden, as he liked to remind us. He could tell the weight of a man to within a few pounds by looking at him a skill necessary for success in the livestock trade, especially when buying pigs. Each year he took off on holidays on his own, to London, where he went to the pictures every night, and to New York, where he visited his cousin, a Jesuit priest in Fordham University. I remember the excitement when the telegram was delivered telling us when my uncle's liner, the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary, would arrive into Southampton. He saw us as his family and visited almost every day, usually at lunchtime, with a gift of bananas. He was also there at Christmas and on other important occasions. He had a few standard sayings. Willful waste makes woeful want, he would proclaim, if he saw food such as bread crusts being thrown out. He had grown up in a world where every last thing, from eggshells to potato peelings, had been kept in a bucket and fed to pigs. "'Darn, darn!' was not a cowboy expletive from the Wild West, but an exhortation to mend rather than replace. "'If someone were to say, "'I met so-and-so yesterday, he's really a very nice man,' my uncle would unfailingly retort, "'The nicest man I ever met stole my watch.' The other adults present would look knowingly at each other and roll their eyes. I could tell that my uncle's sayings irritated them, for they had heard them over and over again for years. But I was curious and wanted to know more about the theft of the watch. So one day, when we were alone, I asked him. It was summer and my uncle was on board the Queen Mary, on the way to New York, he told me. He didn't say so specifically, but I imagine he was travelling first class because he described dinners during the seven-day crossing when wine was served by white-jacketed stewards and the captain came to join the table. Early into the voyage, my uncle made the acquaintance of a most charming man, also travelling alone. This gentleman, another widower, the same age as my uncle, was from London, where he too was in business. I formed the impression of someone as well-dressed as my uncle, equally successful, well-mannered, interesting and urbane. The two men took to walking the decks of the great ship together, morning and evening. The Englishman was most solicitous, complimenting my uncle on his tailor, his linen, even on his beautiful gold pocket-watch, a family heirloom moored across my uncle's midriff by a golden fob-chain, and housed in a pocket of his waistcoat. His new friend sympathised with him on his bereavement, and though he too had lost his wife, seemed to relegate his own loss to a secondary position. They discussed the politics of the troubled world and found that their views on most things were in alignment. They spoke of their plans for the future. The Englishman was extremely excited about seeing New York for the first time, and my uncle... An old New York hand was able to give him tips on where to go and what to see. On the final night of the voyage, after dinner, the two men took their cigars and brandies out on deck. My uncle was pleased to have made a new friend, especially someone from London who he could look forward to seeing again on future trips to that city. They arranged to have breakfast the next morning when they would exchange addresses this most charming man then asked my uncle a favor he very much wanted to be up next day at the crack of dawn so as not to miss the statue of liberty as the ship came into harbor but because his own wristwatch was no longer working wondered if he might borrow my uncle's pocket watch so that when he awoke he would know when to go out on deck my uncle unhesitatingly handed over his gold watch The following morning, in the dining room for breakfast, my uncle delayed ordering until his new friend appeared. There was no sign of the Englishman. He must be still out on deck, my uncle smiled to himself and thought how exciting the famous New York skyline would appear to someone seeing it for the first time. After breakfast, with still no sign of his friend, my uncle was at the bow as the ship docked. Over the next hour, amid the bustle of hundreds of disembarking passengers, he searched for his new friend in vain. He waited and waited until eventually he was the last passenger to leave the ship. Many years later, when I looked out the window of a plane and saw the New York skyline for the first time, I couldn't help but think of a kind and generous soul whose open-ended trust in people had been ended, right here, by the nicest man he had ever met. That's life.
0: That's life.
2: That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April,
3: shut down in May. But I know I'm going to change that tune When I'm
2: back on top, back on top of June.
4: I was 13 when I was given a present of a copy of The Diary of Anne Frank, and I was immediately struck by the coincidence that I was the age she had been when she began keeping the diary that was to become one of the most searing and eloquent memorials to the Holocaust. I was also overwhelmed as much by her ruminations as by her extraordinary mastery of sophistication and prose. To my unsophisticated Irish eye and ear, Anne Frank was a revelation. It wasn't that this German-Dutch-Jewish girl of my own age had been in one way no different to me, she had been better. Despite being locked away from all normal experience for the last two years of her life, almost from the light of day, she was more mature, more thoughtful, more questioning, infinitely more aware. When she began writing her diary on June twelfth, 1942, Anne Frank already knew that she wanted to be a writer, specifically a journalist, if she was good enough. She wrote, I know I can write, but it remains to be seen whether I really have talent. I succeeded in becoming a journalist, although my resolve didn't form until I was 16. Anne Frank didn't. She died a few weeks before her 16th birthday. The last entry in her diary had been on August first, 1944. Three days later, the Gestapo raided the Frank family's hiding place in Amsterdam, where they had lived in secret for two years and they were sent to Auschwitz concentration camp. Anne's father Otto went to the men's camp. His wife and daughters never saw him again. Months later, his wife Edith died in what in that dark corner of hell was obscenely called the infirmary in Auschwitz from starvation. She had saved her rations for her daughters, Anne and her older sister Margot. In October of that year, Anne and Margot were in a transport of 1,019 people who were transferred from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen in cattle trucks. 549 of them were children under the age of 15 who were gassed immediately on arrival. Anne had reached her 15th birthday a few months earlier, which saved her life. Survivors of the camp later told of seeing Anne as late as January 1945. She was bald, nearly naked, emaciated and shivering. But she told them she wanted to write a book based on her diary when the war was over. Despite that, believing her father to be dead and knowing her mother was, she didn't want to go on living. She only got one of the wishes. Anne Frank died Only a few weeks later, from typhus, as did Margot, who was so ill she fell from her bunk and died in the fall. A year earlier Anne had written in her diary, Margot's not nearly so catty these days. She survived her sister by only a few days. A few weeks later, Belson was liberated. When the Germans invaded the Netherlands in 1940, Anne's father Otto was a successful businessman. But soon his daughter was recording in her diary the way the world was closing in on Amsterdam's Jewish population. Her father saw the writing on the wall. A secret hiding place reached through a bookcase, had already been prepared in his place of business, and there Anne and her family lived from July 1942 for two years, joined by another Jewish couple and their teenage son Peter, as well as a family acquaintance, a dentist called Fritz Pfeffer, with whom Anne shared a tiny bedroom. But it was Peter van Pels with whom she shared her first kiss. The eight people lived in the cramped space for two years, protected by a small group of friends, non-Jews, who were risking their own lives in the process. Nobody knows for certain who in Amsterdam betrayed the Franks. The pages of Anne's diary were found scattered in the annex, as it was known, after the arrest. Otto was the only one of the pitiful group to survive the war and published his dead daughter's testimony in 1947. It was translated into English in 1952 and is now available in 70 languages as a clarion call against hatred and discrimination worldwide. Perhaps inevitably, there were accusations that Otto had written the diaries, but technology has proven them to be Anne's own work. Also, Otto initially censored passages in which his keen eyed daughter documented the tensions between him and his wife, as well as her own contempt for her mother. The later entries were a far cry from the little girl who brought her collection of marbles to a school friend before going into hiding and asked her to look after them for her. Other pages detailed her burgeoning sexuality, problems with menstruation, exploration of her own body, and her hopes for a different adulthood from her mother's. I need to have something besides a husband and children to devote myself to, she wrote. Anne Frank didn't know that she would become an international icon. Perhaps the most famous victim in the world of the horror that was Nazism. Had she lived on, had she had a normal adolescence, perhaps the diaries might have been a less intensely devastating manifestation of her burgeoning woman's spirit. But reading them shook me to my own teenage core, and I recall them every year on Holocaust Day. Apart from anything else, They've been my trigger for a deep shame for Ireland's indifferent neutrality while fascism consumed Europe, and we claimed it was nothing to do with us. Perhaps, nearly 90 years on, from a skeletal Anne Frank's hideous death for the crime of being Jewish, we have learned compassion, or perhaps not.
5: In the middle of December, I travelled two kilometres or so down the road to Camden Register Office with my rapidly deflating partner and a carry cot filled with something terribly personal to register the birth of my son. It's frosty in London, the grass frozen white each day before sunrise. I know this because I am there to witness it, my son having kept me up to do so. He was born just a week before, on a Monday morning, purple, screaming, slimy held aloft by a team of obstetricians, surgeons and midwives who'd vacuumed his head free from my pushing, drugged-up girlfriend, Feddy. I snipped his cord and they handed him to me, bundled up, before checks first or after, I don't quite remember, and once they did, I rocked him in my arms and looked at his little face and wept, showing him to my also-sobbing partner and singing songs to him, between telling him, Welcome, Ty, Cade me la faute, Tygy. Benvenuto, how are you? Ciao, 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 my little tige I'm happy to update you that upon the birth of my child, I did not suddenly receive or become a font of knowledge about the world. I don't know anything more about life now than when I entered the hospital. I knew midwives worked hard, and I know hospital workers save us from diseases and ill health. My appreciation has increased, but my theoretical knowledge, no. A week after the birth of Tyg, I don't know anything else about being a man or what it means to be responsible. I don't know anything about the universe or algorithms or Allen keys or physics or how to make a campfire. Selfish or not, idiotic, it is. I feel more invested now than I was in the future of the planet, it being the place my child will live. I am pleased also to report that when walking the streets outside, days after young Tyg is born, I'm not overwhelmed with some sort of deep change to my own being. I've not seen the other side. I have not felt love I have never known, simply a multiplication of something already there. No doubt there's some deeper, more subtle change currently snaking its way into my being, but as it is, nope. I simply have a new attendant purpose and a set of matching responsibilities. Walking the frost-struck streets of Holloway, I'm at times beset by a deep urge to return home, to check on my baby. But I also really fancy a coffee and something chocolatey and I'm sure to stress a bit money while I'm at it. Life carries on and what's a baba if not just more life about the place? More screaming, puking, diarrhoeing life. I have seen my partner happier than I have ever seen her. This is bully for her but... It makes my past romancing of her suddenly seem a little underwhelming. Am I to compete with my own child now for my girlfriend's affection? Yes, it seems. And who will win? Tig? But we feel bound to each other now in a way we can't have ever been before. We've given each other a gift, an explosive well of frustration and love, done a thing together that can't be undone, something that can never be changed. Before I became a father, I saw little point in my interacting with other children and now, just a few days after, I still don't. I can tell you I have learned very little from my conversations with five-year-olds and their thoughts are often disjointed, irrelevant or vastly oversimplified. But I respect a parent's right to show me their child and boast of them and to adore them publicly. It is their right and so too now it is mine so I will sing across the airwaves of his arrival. It's not enough to just register the birth of a child with the relevant authorities, Camden Council or with the GP, for I've brought a son of Aaron into this world. Though we're over the sea, and he is a little Londoner by dint of being resident here, as far as I'm concerned he's simply a petite Irishman living in London. He is also an de dell'Italia, evidenced by the first part of his last name and his mother's eyes so far. So notice now, to all, that he is Tig, a name for me worth roaring to the nation and all its people, whether they care or not, because delight demands to be shared. An unequivocally brilliant, marvellous, ecstatic thing has occurred, and so mark these words, Tig, my darling boy is here. One of your nation's sons is here, abroad, happy and screaming. My son looks at me with alien, dark eyes face odd like a little hairless chimp or a tiny purple bulldog he coughs and my heart plunges when he screams me awake at night I dearly wish him gone and then I'm shocked at my thoughts in the morning when this dozing little charmer does all he can to fill my heart with something I can only describe as his name Tig little Tig, Tigene Bjug bellow Tig, my tiny tiger, my gorgeous boy I'll say his name over and over and over, only as evidence that he is here. When before I only called him Baba, now he's my darling son, my excellent little dude. Welcome to the world, Tyke All the better for having you in it.
3: On the 25th of January, the anniversary of his birth, Scots everywhere celebrate our national poet Robert Burns. My great-great-uncle Roger Quinn was also a poet. Known in his day as the tramp poet because of his itinerant lifestyle, his family came to Scotland from Ireland in the 1840s and settled at Dumfries where Roger was born in 1850. He was a bright child and was educated privately, not because the family had money. Indeed, Quinn Sr. was described as one of the poorest men in Dumfries. But he had influential friends, and those connections, allied to the boys' intelligence, won Roger a place at Dumfries Academy. He encountered prejudice and snobbery from wealthier boys, but used his brains and his fists to defend himself. At school, he fell in love with books and with writing, and this became a lifelong passion. He was inspired by Burns, but also in particular by Shelley, to whom he wrote a poetic tribute. On leaving school, he started work with the local council. He also helped his father's friend, a publisher, who owned the local bookshop. A patron of that shop was no less a figure than Thomas Carlyle, who lived nearby. But young Roger knew nothing of Carlyle's literary fame. He knew, however, that he wanted to spread his wings. So he moved to Glasgow, the second city of the empire, to work for a railway company. His family moved to the Scottish borders to my hometown of Galashiels around this time. And in due course, Roger followed them, finding employment in the woolen mills and factories that had grown up close to the River Tweed. Roger spent his leisure time in rambles by streams and over hills, or along the green highways of this lovely and romantic countryside. He became active in the local amateur dramatic society, a path followed many years later by my mother, and in a small way by me. And unlike my mother and me, he began to write poetry. Quinn loved the great outdoors, and when, after many happy years in the borders, he was obliged to return to work in Glasgow, he was miserable. But he was also inspired to write his best known poem, The Borderland, a love letter from his urban prison to the open country. It begins From the moorland to the meadow to this city of the shadows, where I wander old and lonely, comes the call I understand, in clear, soft tones enthralling. It is calling, calling, calling. Tis the spirit of the open from the dear old borderland. Since coming to Ireland, and despite having lived in many splendid cities, not least London, Paris, Stockholm and New York, I know what Quinn means by the spirit of the open. I find myself at my happiest and freest in the Wicklow Hills, at British Bay, in the sea off White Rock Beach. Robert Burns also loved nature and young Quinn was inspired by him in a somewhat unusual way, as he recalled in a speech delivered at a Burns supper in January 1908. The young Quinn's home overlooked the graveyard in Dumfries, where Burns was buried. One day in May 1857, when I suspect he should have been at school, young Roger was playing in the graveyard, when he saw a group of men around Burns's grave. The poet's eldest son was being buried, and the family vault was being opened for the interment. It had been decided temporarily to remove Burns's skull so that it could be chemically treated better to preserve it for posterity. Roger was beckoned to the gravesite and was handed the skull of Robert Burns. There were three adults there that morning, but 50 years later Quinn was the only survivor of that inspiring encounter. As he put it, Of all the thousands to meet throughout the world tonight to honour the memory of Burns, I alone can boast the grim distinction of having held in the hand that pens these lines the poor shattered casket whence issued the deathless music which finds an echo in the common heart of humanity in every land. Quinn said of his own work, I've never written a line with a view to publication. Indeed, when a book of his poems was mooted, he had to furnish his publishers with what he called such scraps of verse as I could remember. His fame, such as it was, was essentially local, based on a wide circle of friends and on his generosity in sharing his work with them. One such example is tucked away in my own copy of his book, given to me by my great-aunt, Quinn's niece. It's a faded piece of paper on which is scribbled a poem written for a christening in May 1900. But the sentiment is, I think, eternal. The poem begins... Wherever you dwell, may content be your lot, and friendship like ivy encircle your cot. And it ends, as I will, with a wish. May your honest endeavours be crowned with success. May you ever live happy, never witness distress. On your humble roof, may these blessings descend. Tis a wish free from guile, tis the wish of a friend. A
5: fun kiss, and
3: then we suffer. A farewell.
2: River ran. How still he must have been, my Uncle Pat, to capture trout with his bare hand in the brown river that runs, no, that ran, near Thirndhangan, Clunine, home. All gone, all forestry, all pine.
0: On this morning's programme we heard Sexy Salsa by Elizabeth Oxley New York, New York by Peter Cunningham The Diary of Anne Frank The Great Teenage Testament of Nazism's Most Famous Martyr was by Emer Kelly Registration of the Birth of Tig was by Rory Gleeson Burns Night and Borderlands. My great-great-uncle Roger Quinn was by Paul Johnston, who is the current British ambassador to Ireland. And River Ran, a poem by Vincent Woods. The music today was Amor del Bueno by Ramon Cordero. That's Life by Frank Sinatra. An extract from Zay composed by Jeff Hamburg and sung by Judith Mock with the Amsterdam Sinfonietta. Love is All Around by The Trogs. And A Fond Kiss was sung by the Voice Squad. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer of the programme is Sarah Binchy. And you can find out more about this and other RTE Arts and Culture programmes on the website rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, just go to the RTE radio app. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.